Good morning. Good morning. Um, it's down in the hallway for first song or so. Uh, and joy of the children down there. It's good. It's good to be back. Thank you, families, for coming back. Um, we are uh, nearing the end. Uh, in fact, this is the second to last week. Next week will be the final week of our sermon series in the book of Philippians. We've been studying the uh, theme of joy in the book of Philippians for the last uh, semester or so. Yes, thank you. Hit that. Hit the hi-hat. Yes. Um, is that what it's called? It's called a hi-hat? Is that right? Yeah, I know music stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you took <laughs> He just started playing this week, so no, I'm kidding. Um, been studying the theme of joy in Philippians, and what we've been looking at each week on, on repeat is this repeated theme, this repeated paradigm that says uh, to the reader, to the listener, that if you want to get a deeper experience of joy, if you want to have a deeper understanding of the joy that is yours in Jesus, it's not going to come the way you think it's going to come. Deeper joy in the person of Jesus does not come by achieving more, mastering more, accomplishing more, uh, winning more, believing more, or arriving more. Deeper joy in the person of Jesus, deeper joy in the kingdom of God is upside down, and it comes actually by losing more, it comes by failing more, it comes by death of self more and more. And so the path to joy for the Christian and what we've called our sermon series is winning by losing, the path to joy in Philippians, that we're actually invited to lose our grip on certain convictions, lose our grip on certain ideas that would bring us more joy, lose our idea of what we thought would make us more joyful, that we would open our hands to receive more of the joy of Jesus. So today we're going to look at the joy in losing your discontentment, which I know no one can relate to, so if you feel like you don't have anything to learn, you can leave now. Kidding. Um, it's deeply, deeply convicting. Um, this passage and this idea. So, if you will, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. We're going to read nine verses together. This is in the NIV translation. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. <clears throat> I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at, the la at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Would you pray with me? Jesus, um, we come before your word, and your word uh, tells us that it will um, cut deep into us. That it's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it cuts both bone and marrow. It gets to the very essence of who we are. It wants to expose us to reality about ourselves, but more importantly, it wants to show us the reality of who you are. 
So we need you, uh, Spirit, by your word to do that this morning. Um, Use your scalpel on us, uh, cut us open, but don't leave us with an open wound. Mend us with the gospel of Jesus, we pray this morning. That we can trust the surgeon uh, who may need to bring out uh, from our hearts a reality that we don't want to admit, but we trust uh, the hand that holds the scalpel. We trust you, Jesus, to do soul work this morning. We pray now for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So this passage is famous, infamous, if you will, for verse 13, the verse that closed out the section I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's famous, especially if you've been or seen a Christian high school football team t-shirt. It's famous if you have been on Pinterest. It's famous if you bought the Pottery Barn sign for your Aunt Cheryl, right? But it, um, I don't, you don't have an Aunt Cheryl probably, I hope. Um, But the verse takes on a whole new meaning. That, That closing out of this section it's very important that that verse be read, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's very, very important that that verse be read in context of what Paul is talking about. I saw a meme recently, or I think it was a coffee mug, uh, that said, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, um, which is a lot of what, a lot of how that verse gets applied, a lot of where that verse gets thrown at people and slapped on like a Band-Aid for any situation. I can do all this Through him who gives me strength. Yes, that is true for whatever you're facing. Christ is strength for you in whatever you are up against. And he Paul didn't write that for the big football game on Friday night. Like he wrote it, he wrote it in context. He wrote it with something very specific. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What's the this? It's a very particular word that's referring back to something. What is the this? Let's read it in context again. Open your ears and hear the context that's leading up to, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all this through Jesus who strengthens me. What's the this? Listen for it. Starting in verse 11. Allie, I don't know if you can find verse 11. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What's the this? What's Paul talking about here when he leads up to this famous verse? He's talking about contentment. Contentment, our English word, comes from the Latin contentus, which means to be satisfied Paul is talking about being content. He's talking about being satisfied. He's talking about being okay. He's talking about being at peace. He's talking about having your soul be at rest. He's talking about a calmness, a stillness, an okayness with what you have and how your life is going. The power of Jesus, I can do all this, is what Paul is talking about contentment. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So let me ask you this question. When you look at your life, what do you believe that you lack? Do you lack joy in your life? Do you lack money in your life? Do you lack uh, romance in your life? Do you lack 
children in your life? Do you lack the way things are going in your life being different in your life? Do you lack a desire to be in a career or a job that you want? Do you lack your family not working the way that you want it to work? Do you lack the, the, the unmet expectation of how your life would be at this point five years ago when you thought you'd be at this point, what you thought it would mean for you? What do you think you're missing? What do you not think that you have? And the deeper question about that, when you look at your life and you see what you're missing, what you lack, what are you missing that you believe that if you had it, if that situation were different, you would then be able to be content? What is standing between you and contentment, between you and peace, between you and satisfaction, that something enters that frame, something enters that part of your heart's desire and says, I really want to be content. I really want to be at peace. I really want to have soul rest, but it's on the other side of this thing that I have to get through or get over or arrive at. I would love for you in your own heart this morning, right now, to name something. Like imagine what it is and get real specific. No one's going to ask you this. You're not going to be public with this. What do you lack what do you think that you, if you had something, then you would be content? What is it that you don't have? Name it in your heart. What are you, to use this language of the passage, what are you in need of and want of or hungry for that you think would bring you peace and contentment? And maybe if we kind of flip that coin over, what am I, what am I lacking that I don't have that I think would bring me contentment? What do I think is, is standing between me and contentment and soul peace If we flip that coin around or flip that question on its head, Paul actually invites us to the other side, the other end of that question. What actually do you have? What have you fed yourself on? What do you have plenty of? What have you planned for? What have you achieved? What have you arrived at and worked for and gotten that you have worked your whole life to get somewhere and you've gotten there and it's worked for you and now you're there and it's still not enough? That's why it's very important that Paul, in this little listing section that he lists on this journey to contentment, he lists both ends of the spectrum. He doesn't just say he's learned contentment in his lack or his want or his need. He says, I've learned contentment in my lack and my want and my need and in my plenty and my being fed and my having what I wanted. I had to learn contentment there too. He didn't say, I had all this lack and this want and this need and then I got everything I wanted and that was my journey to contentment. He says, no, 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 I had to learn contentment on both ends of the spectrum. I had to learn contentment when I didn't have what I want, and guess what? I had to learn contentment when I did get what I want. It's especially true for us in a city like Nashville. We all need to hear from someone who not just has felt like they lack something, we need to hear about contentment from someone who's had everything and still wasn't content. Because this city will eat you up and chew you up and spit you out trying to get to the top of the ladder, trying to get somewhere to make more, to make more of yourself, to have more of a name, to be more relevant, to do something, to get a crowd. And, and, and you need to hear from someone who's been on the other side of having everything you want and they're still not content. It's why when Tom Brady or Jim Carrey or Hugh Hefner, all of them at the end of their life, Tom Brady's not the end of his life, maybe, end of his career, but after they've, after, they've, after they've achieved much, after they've done everything you wish you could have done, they still say they're not happy. They've won everything they've ever wanted, they've had all the women they've ever wanted, they've had all the money and the fame the world could offer them, and they still say, I'm not content with it. It's not enough. 
and they've had everything you wanted. They've gotten to where you want to get to so that you would be content. They've had it. Well, way before modern celebrities like them, the Bible was saying it before them. In the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, the author is the king of Israel. No one knows exactly who he was, but he was the king of Israel and he was rich. Chapter two, he starts off chapter two by saying this. He says, I decided to put pleasure to the test. Man, I wanted to be his friend. Like, let's, let's, let's take pleasure to the max. And he says it. This, listen to what he says. He goes on to list at the beginning of chapter two all that he was going to do in order to put pleasure to the test. He says this. He says, I had wine. I had fields and cattle. I had gold and silver. I had vacation homes. I had private parties. I had concubines and I had servants. I had it all. I I had everything you want, and I had it to the nines. I didn't just have it a little bit more than you. I had it way more than you. Listen to what he says as he's closing out this section in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Can you imagine living a life where when you want to do something, you just do it? That's what he's saying. He lived that way. He says, I kept my heart from no pleasure. And he was the king, so no one was going to tell him no. He could build whatever house he wanted. He could bring in whatever women he wanted. He could get as much money as he wanted. He could have as many servants as he wanted. He could own all the cattle he wanted, all the fields. He had everything. And this is what he says. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I had it all and it still wasn't enough. It was like chasing the wind. Ever tried that? So what is it for you? Are you in need or are you in plenty? Are you lacking and believe that you need something or have you gotten what you want and you're still not happy? Where are you in the journey to contentment? Maybe, depending on the day, you can be in both places. That's what was shocking to me about reading this passage over and over again this week and kind of trying to study my own heart and my relationship to contentment. And on certain days, I feel like, man, if I could just then. And then other days this week, I'm like, man, I feel like I, I've gotten everything I've ever hoped I could have. I have an amazing job. I have an amazing family. We live in an amazing neighborhood. My kids are amazing. Like what? My my spouse is amazing. Like what? And I'm what? What is it? So here's my question to you: Wherever you are, I would say to you, Paul has something for you. And here's what he's saying to you: Whether you're in need or in plenty, whether you are hungry or fed, he has this to say to you: Contentment is possible for you. Would you dare to believe that contentment is possible for you in plenty or in want? Let me dare to say to you what Paul just said. He says this, contentment is possible for you even if none of your circumstances change. Look at what Paul said. I've learned the secret of being content, he says this, in any and every situation. Funny thing about those Greek words, any and every, guess what they mean? (laughs) Any and every. That Paul is literally saying to you, I'm, I'm actually trying to lead you, trying, trying to invite you into believing there is a contentment and a peace that is possible no matter what your situation is. Do you think it possible to have contentment, whatever your circumstances are, to have contentment and to, and to have peace, to be satisfied, the old Latin contentus, contentus to be satisfied in whatever circumstance you're in. And I'm not trying to be cold. I'm not trying to be numb. I'm not trying to be dismissive of what you're going through. I'm also not trying to be naive about your reality. Here's what I'm trying to say. Christian contentment is not nirvana. 
It's not separating yourself from your reality to the point where circumstances now become this ethereal thing and you've removed and detached yourself from reality in order to find contentment. Paul's not doing that. Paul's actually saying contentment, satisfaction, and peace is actually possible when you are really and fully dealing with and living into your reality. You can actually have this peace, this contentment to such a degree that you actually believe that whatever circumstances you are in, they can't get to the place in your heart where contentment or discontentment lives. This is what he's doing. If he can remove um, the need for circumstances to change in order for contentment to be found, what he's saying to us is, is it possible that contentment lives in a place that circumstances can't touch? Is it possible that contentment and peace and rest and joy and satisfaction comes from a place in your heart that circumstances don't have a say into? They can't get there because they're in a deeper part of you than just what's going on in your life or in your world. Paul did not envision a situation where circumstances changed or external needs were met and then contentment would happen. How do we know that? How do I know that's what Paul believed? Remember where Paul is when he wrote this? He's in prison. He's about to face execution, and he's not a liar. And what did he say to them? I'm content. How's his life going? How are his circumstances treating him? If you were him, what would you want to be happening? His circumstances were not good. His life was not going the way that he wanted them to go, and yet he was content. He was drowning, and yet he had learned how to breathe underwater. He was starving, but he had learned to get his food from another place. So I know if you're alive in here today, if you're breathing in here today, we would all love to be able to say with Paul, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. So what could get us there? How could that reality for Paul become a reality for us? I need you to buckle up because we got a few more pages and notes to go before we unlock this treasure chest. Verse seven is the key that unlocks the entire thing on the journey to contentment. Verse seven, Allie. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. What's the peace of God? And what in the world does the peace of God have to do with me being content in every situation? Well, I can tell you the biblical picture of peace is not just summed up in this little section. The biblical picture of peace is simple but profound. It's lucid but it's deep. And here's a very simple way to say it, especially in the context of this passage. Here's what Paul is saying. Biblical peace is biblical contentment. One who is at peace knows that there is nothing out there to gain or to do or to achieve that will make me more satisfied. One who is at peace knows that my circumstances may never change. I may be in a prison, and I may not get out of that prison like Paul, but I can be at peace in the prison. I don't have to be at peace with the prison. I don't have to like jail. I don't have to like the prison that I'm in like Paul, but I can be at peace in prison. One who is at peace knows that the quest for peace, the war for peace, is not threatened by its circumstances changing. The biblical picture of peace is the picture of someone who is not worried, not shaken, not threatened or thwarted. One who is at peace is one who is content.
So Paul has a lot to say about this peace of God on our journey to contentment because the peace of God is your contentment. So now back up with me for a moment. Ponder again the moment that I asked you, the situation or the idea or the rock that stands between you and contentment. What is that for you? The scenario that you think needs to change in order for you to be content. Think about the family strife in your world. Think about the romantic desires that you have and are unmet. Think about the stress of your world and how you believe contentment lies on the other side of those things finding relief. And now if you're willing to risk this, here's what I want you to imagine. That situation that you believe stands between you and contentment, whatever it is, imagine not only that situation not changing, imagine that situation not only not getting better, imagine that situation getting worse. Imagine the hopes that you have getting more dashed against the rocks than they currently are. So are you there in your mind? Fun place to be, right? Are you there? Now imagine this, is peace possible there? Do you believe you could have peace and contentment there? Do you think you could stand in the middle of that war, in the middle of that wreckage and be at peace? Be satisfied, be content. Not content with the circumstances. No one's asking you to be a robot and not feel anything if your situations don't get better. Not content with the circumstances, content in them because the circumstances can't touch the place that is bringing you peace. Is that possible? I know it's tough to believe. It's actually, it's actually like literally tough to get our minds there. It's tough to imagine that as a reality. It's tough to imagine a path to get there. How, how in the world could I imagine a situation that I think would bring me peace and bring me contentment getting worse and actually having peace or contentment in that situation? Which is why this little phrase that Paul adds in the middle of this little section about the peace of God is so important. If we're gonna learn peace, we have to get really comfortable and really familiar with this little phrase that he uses to describe the peace of God. Look at what he says. He says, in the peace of God, next phrase, descriptor. I don't know if it's an adverb phrase or an adjective phrase. It wasn't an English major. But he says this, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding. which transcends all understanding. Literally means, on the Greek level, to be superior to the entire mind. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's contrasting knowledge and peace. Peace excels over knowledge. In fact, Paul is saying what we know inherently. There are situations where knowledge is insufficient. There are situations where even if you did know everything, even if you did understand everything, it wouldn't bring any comfort or make anything any better. How often in our quest for peace and how often in our quest for contentment, our quest for satisfaction, do we say things like this? If I could just understand why it's happening, then... If I, could, if I could just have more conversations about it, if I could just talk about it more, if I could just think about it more, if I could just go around the barn of that and dwell on it a little bit more, if I could just understand it, then maybe if I could understand why or understand how, if I could get to the bottom of what's going on in me, if I could get to the bottom of the situation over there, if I could really understand why this isn't working, then, then, I, would just, then I would have some peace. If God would just explain to me why he's letting this happen, then I would have peace with the situation. I'm not at peace being single, but if God would just explain to me why I'm single, then I would be okay. I'm not at peace with my children being the way that they are, but if God would just explain to me why he's letting this happen, 
that I would have some peace. Not at peace with the struggles that God has allowed for me to walk in. If he would just let me know why he's letting me walk in them, then I would be okay in them. But Paul just told you that the peace that can hold you in any situation is beyond your understanding. It's above it. That verb is really important. It transcends it. Which means this. The peace of God can be known and experienced even if it's not understood. So I was typing out you know, notes and thoughts this week, you know, brainstorming on my notes and docs and all that kind of stuff. You know on uh, computers, Apple computers, which is the only computer you should be using, but on Apple computers, uh, you know, if a, if a word processor doesn't recognize a phrase or it thinks that, like you used the wrong phrase in a sentence, it will underline it in red. Even if everything's spelled correctly, it's not even just spell check, it's saying like, this phrase does not make sense, this phrase does not compute, this phrase is not what you were thinking, writer of this phrase, like you actually meant this other thing. I, I, you know, so I'm typing out lots of things this week and this, this passage is all over my notes and my computers. Every single time on the computer, there's a red line under the peace of God. Which I thought was so funny. Steve Jobs didn't get it, okay? It literally could not compute or understand how that sentence structure would be reasonable to what I was actually trying to say. And I would say to you, neither do we. We, we put a red underline under that. As soon as I read it, you go, peace of God. Like what? That doesn't, that doesn't help me. That doesn't get, that doesn't, you surely you meant to say something else. I'd love to know what all you underline in red for my sermons, but. Do you have access to the peace of God when you're anxious? Do you have access to the peace of God when your circumstances are in need or in want? Do you have access to the peace of God in every situation? And if so, what's the path to the peace of God? How do we get there? Well, let me tell you one thing Paul just told you. The path to the peace of God is not through your understanding it. It's not figuring out a situation. It's not getting more knowledge or data about it. It's not even necessarily having more conversations about it. It's not getting to the bottom of why something's happening. It's not confronting the issue head on. It's not logically navigating all that we may need to imagine that may need to take place in order to get to the bottom of something. That's not Paul's path to the peace of God. You will not understand it. It transcends your understanding, which is, which is so comical. that If, if we look at this, I, I think two things are... <laughs> are comical about this, that when we want the quest for why, we want more understanding about a situation and how we got here and what's the resolution and how do I get on the other side of the rock that's blocking my contentment and my peace. I gotta get through it, I gotta get over it, I gotta get around it, I gotta talk about it, I gotta think about it, I gotta read about it. All this stuff, we are assuming two things there. Two very important things about our path to peace coming through our understanding. The first is, is that if you could get Jesus at the coffee table and go, all right, Jesus, I got you for 30 minutes. I got a lot to ask you, but the, really the most important thing is my contentment when you talk about this, okay? And I got some things to ask you, Jesus. Could you just explain to me? Could you just explain to me why you've let these things happen and why these things are different and why these circumstances aren't moved? Here's, here's two assumptions about that interaction. Jesus across the table. The first is, is that if he started talking, you could understand it. Like it's comical to think that our finite minds can understand an infinite being who sustains the universe by his very breath, who spoke the world into existence, who can see 
way more outside of time or space than you can even fathom. And we think if we had him across the coffee table and he started talking about why he put us in this family or why this has happened or why he let that heartache go down or why he's letting us walk in this scenario and why these circumstances are different, if he started talking that you would get it. It's, 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 an arrogant to, it's an arrogance to believe that if he started talking about all the explanations, we would fully understand it. The second thing is this, and this is maybe more, more painful. That's, that's a shot to our intelligence. This is maybe a shot to our heart. What if he started explaining it and you could understand it? Why all this was happening to you and why these situations weren't different and why the circumstances he was allowing. And you're going, okay, I'm tracking with you, I'm tracking with you, I'm getting it. It's a big assumption to think that you would like his explanation. It's a big assumption to think that you would agree with the understanding. And so we go on this quest for understanding, like, would you just explain to me? I just want to know why, what you're trying to teach me, what lesson are you trying to show me, and then I'll have contentment. Just let me know why this is happening. Give me more understanding about this. Please explain to me. One, could you understand it? And two, if you could, would you like it? Like, maybe it's a mercy that you can't understand it. The peace of God is transcendent. It's beyond your understanding. And your understanding of a situation or a circumstance or a scenario, your understanding it will not deliver the kind of peace and contentment that you think it will. It won't. That's why Paul has to say it in here. And the peace of God, which transcends your understanding, you can set down your ability to try to understand it, and you can still have peace. But then look at what he says about this transcendent peace. The very next phrase, he says, the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard there in the original language is a military term. It implies that the peace of God literally stands on duty and watches. It's active in its defense. It moves towards you. It may transcend your understanding, but it is not out of reach. Because it is the prime mover. It moves. It works. It guards. It defends. It intercedes. It, it is active on duty. It's got the night shift and the day shift. And it, like a military defender, is always watching to move and be active in its defense of you. Again, the transcendent peace of God can be known and experienced even if it cannot be fully understood. The peace of God defends you. Constant defense constant intercession, constant active duty. So what is the peace of God defending you from? Why would Paul use a military term here? What's it guarding you from actively? We have to back up to the person of Jesus. See his life, his death, his resurrection, his mission. We have to acknowledge that at least in part, Jesus' mission was all about ending the war. Ending the war and ending the strife that stood between you and God. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. That the blood of Jesus bought something for you. The blood of Jesus did something for you. The blood of Jesus actively accomplished something for you. The blood of Jesus brought you peace. 
the war to bring peace between you and God has been won by Jesus, which means all the striving you do to bring peace to your standing with God, all of the proving you do, all the mental gymnastics, all the promises, all the self-hatred, all the shame you swim in, all the fighting you and I do to create peace of conscience, all of it is fighting a war that has already been won. We spend a lot of energy with the demons between our ears trying to quiet them, trying to quell them, trying to quench them, trying to put out the arrows, trying to move and not let the arrows of accusation and condemnation hit us. That if we can prove enough of what we've done, prove enough of how we've grown, prove enough of how we've matured and how we handle it, prove enough and achieve enough, then maybe I'll be at peace. And here's what all of that striving and all that fighting on our part proves. Here's what it proves. It proves that you and I really don't believe that we're justified. There's still something to prove. There's still something to defend. There's still something to do. And so when we don't have the peace of conscience, the peace with God, if we don't believe it, functionally, if we don't live into it, it's there. It's actively defending us. But if we live like there is still a war, we pick up the battle cry. We pick up the sword. We think we have a war to fight when there is no war. But we hear sirens. You may hear from me the peace of God which transcends understanding is active in its defense of you. It's guarding your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. And you would go, yeah, welcome to my week because it doesn't feel like that. I don't feel like I'm at peace. I don't feel like I'm at rest. There's things that are attacking me. There's war horns. There's sirens going off telling me there's a battle to fight and I have more to do and more to prove and more to achieve and more to accomplish until I'm going to get this peace that is actively defending me. And here's, here's the battlefields where, where I think we hear the war horns. Here are the places where we think we still have to fight for peace. I'm going to get real um, kind of uh, inception on us, okay? We're going to go through a few different space-time continuums on this, okay? Not trying to get meta, but kind of. So here, here's where I know the war horns are screaming at you because this is where they're screaming at me. Your past sins, your present pain and discontentment, and your future fears, Past sins, present pain, future fears. All of those places, all of those time dimensions are trying to convince you that there is no peace in any of those time dimensions. You cannot have peace from your past sins. You cannot have peace in the present because too, there's too much that needs to change and your future is too fragile. There is no peace in the future for you is what the war horns are trying to convince you of. My past sins will find me out and people will know what a fraud I am. My present pain and discontentment is too much to bear and I want it gone and it needs to be gone now. My future is too fragile and too unknown. There's no possible way you could give me a peace when it relates to my future. Every dimension of my time and reality threatens my peace. I cannot be at peace. But the peace of God is active in its defense of you. The peace of God in the person of Jesus moves to defend you. There's a constant pleading of the blood which justifies you. Hebrews chapter seven, your great high priest, Jesus, because he's alive, guess what Hebrews chapter seven says he is doing right now? It says he always lives to make intercession for you. That's what he's doing right now. He's pleading for you. He's pleading the blood that he shed for you that has is, that is actually accomplished your peace between you and God and there is no more war to fight and he is still saying, I'm active. I'm always alive to make intercession for you. Christ has defeated all of the enemies that threaten you. 
He has paid for all of your sins, not just past, but present and future. He is with you in the present, which means the pain may be excruciating, but you are not alone in it. And he has secured your future by his blood. He has given you peace of conscience and peace with God. Your future, your future is bright. Your future is secure. Your future, and the world may be excruciating between now and when, when home happens, but the future that awaits you that is secured by the blood of Jesus is blissful. Past, present, and future, peace of God guards your heart and your minds. So the swirling accusations, the temptations, the shame, the condemnation, the belief that you lack something and must go and do more, the blood of Jesus, the peace of God, guards you there, and it is active in its defense of you. All of your time dimensions are at peace underneath the rule of Jesus. No time domain can threaten the peace that he has won for me, which means there is no war to fight. (laughs) There's no war to fight in your past, there's no war to fight in your present, and there's no war to fight in your future. Jesus has accomplished peace for you in all of your time dimensions, which means you can put down your swords, you can put down your fists. Here's what should liberate you to put down your sword and to put down your fist in the fight for peace. Here's what should, should melt you That in the fight for peace, the ultimate fight for peace between you and the Lord, guess who initiated that peace being real? He did. He made peace happen, which means the offended party, the one who has sinned against, the one who was betrayed against, that one is who came and made peace with you. Means this, he wants peace more than you do. He wanted it so bad he gave his life for it. He he made peace between you two happen, and he wasn't the one that was sinning. And he wasn't the one that that should have been the one to give himself away to make peace happen. You didn't fight the battle that won your peace. He did. Which means this. Not only are you at peace with God, not only is there nothing to prove to a God who is already pleased with the blood of Jesus that was shed for you, not only are you at peace with him. Here's what this means. Think about it from his perspective. He's at peace with you. If he's at peace with you, guess what that means? You, you can be at peace with you. The way you are today, the way that you walked in here, the burdens that you carried into this room, the shame that's crushing you and the sin that's entangling you, hear this, God is not frantic about those things like you are. God is at peace with you. And his peace guards you. But please know here as we close something really important about this process towards contentment and towards peace for Paul. He says it twice here. He says he learned it. I learned it. Learned something. He didn't achieve it. He didn't win it. He learned it. He didn't go off and study it and get a master's degree in it. He didn't read a book on it. He didn't take a test until he finally passed. He learned it. He's saying, this isn't natural for us. We don't, we don't come into the world thinking this way. But here's what I know about learning um, and things that need to go really deep for us to learn them. The best learning comes through experience. Contentment and peace is learned through experience. I wish it was learned through a sermon. Then we would all leave here and y'all be great. But here's what Paul just said. He had to learn it. He had to live it. You have to live through enough battles to realize the war has already been won. That's what Paul's saying. 
You have to live through enough of the battles to realize the ultimate war has already been won and that the peace of God, which transcends your understanding, actively guards your heart and your mind and it has put to bed all of your enemies. There is no war to fight because the peace of God is active in its defense of you. And when you live through enough battles that, that are won for you, you will begin to learn that the war has already been won. And you may not like this, but you and I actually have a part to play in how we learn from our experiences, right? Like two kids can grow up in the same house and have the same experiences, but they've learned very different things. They have a very different experience from that place. They learn very differently based on what kind of learner they were. This is what Paul says in verse nine. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, seen in me, put it into practice practice these things, he says, and here's, here's what we need to practice. We're going to do this together. Verse 4, throw the opening verses up there again, Allie. Verse 4 through 6, very briefly. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Three things to do. Rejoice, be gentle and pray. Those are the imperatives in this section that Paul would say, if you want to learn contentment, you want to learn the secret of contentment that, that comes through a transcendent peace that you can understand, here's how you pract- here are the things you practice in order to let the experience go deep. Here are the things that you and I participate with and in in order to let the experience of the peace of God guarding our heart and our mind to let it sink in, to let, to let the, the, like the dough be kneaded into with the leaven. Here's the slow work of the experience teaching us. Here's what we do. We rejoice, we're gentle, and we pray. We're gonna practice one of them together this morning. So while you're in prison here, you may have walked in in a prison of discontentment. When you're in want or in need, here's the invitation. Would you practice these things? Practice rejoicing, practice being gentle, and practice praying. That term rejoicing is literally, I, I, have, to, I have to rejoy my heart. I, I have to, I've like lost a joy, I have to rejoy it. I have, I have to like do it again, I have to do it again. That's why he says it, he says it twice in the same sentence. It's like Paul, are you that ADD that you forgot what you just said? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. He's saying you have to keep doing this. You have to keep rejoicing in the Lord, what he's done for you. You have to keep rejoicing in the peace that he's won for you. You have to keep rejoicing in what he's accomplished for you. You have to keep rejoicing that he is a defender of you. You have to keep rejoicing that he has bought all of your freedom from your past sins. He is with you in the present and he has secured your future. You have to keep rejoicing over that. Sing out, cry out from your heart to rejoice in the Lord this morning. It's really hard to do alone. It's easier to do with others. That's why we gather every week, so we're gonna do it now. We're gonna sing out. We're gonna rejoice in the Lord in all of our circumstances for what he has done for us and the peace that he's bought for us. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we need your peace. We need... um, we need to dare to be able to believe that we could be at peace in any circumstance. That what you've done for us actually gets to a place that our circumstances can't touch and that we could be a presence of peace in our world because we know the peace of God 
We don't understand it, but we know it. We know that it's with us. It guards us. The blood of Jesus shed for us has won our peace. May we be a people that lives from that place, we pray in your name. Amen.